Awesome. Well, good morning. Am I doing okay? Awesome. Well, hey, before we dive into the word together, uh, just a couple quick things for you. First, I want to piggyback on what Julia said in the video a moment ago. Don't forget that we are kicking off 21 days of prayer tomorrow, okay? And uh, a couple things on that. We're going to kick it off here in this room tomorrow morning at 6 a.m. with a special time of prayer and worship. And so really want to encourage you to be here for that. Uh, Also, all of our resources are uploaded. They're on the Crosspoint app. They're also on our website, so take advantage of those. Or if you're someone who just likes paper and you like certain things in your hands, like booklets, we have these resources. They're available for free at our connection desk in the lobby. So feel free to grab some of these before you go today for you and, and your family, small group, whatever it may be, all right? But again, be here tomorrow morning. I think God's going to do some special things in our times together, and so uh, pray that you'll show up, get out of bed early, and be a part of that. Uh, a couple of other things really quickly. We are releasing to you today two documents that we typically release around this time every year. One of these is our 2017 annual report, which is basically a look back to all that God did in the life of our church in 2017. And then the next document is our 2018 ministry plan, which is a look forward to all that we believe God is is calling us to accomplish in the year to come, okay? And so um, I want to tell you how to interact with these documents quickly. You can find these, again, on our website, on the Crosspoint app, or if you want paper copies, they're available at our connection desk in the lobby today before you go. But uh, how do you interact with these? Well, first, when it comes to our annual report, it's really simple. I just want you to read it and celebrate. Read it and celebrate what God has done in our church. And there's some incredible stuff in here. Uh, For example, in 2017, we saw 208 people say yes to Jesus for the first time, which is huge, awesome. Um, Almost 900 people participated in groups this year, which is a big deal. We saw over 1,000 first-time guests walk through our doors. We surpassed, for the first time in our history, $2 million in giving which is incredible. Um, We also, yeah, that's something that we can celebrate. Uh, We also sent more people outside the walls to serve both locally and globally than ever before. And so there's a lot of incredible stuff in here, lots more than I just mentioned. So again, if, if this is your church, if these are your people, this is your family, make time to read this, okay? And for those of you who give and serve, I just wanna say thanks for your investment. Um, God used your investment, your contribution, your participation to accomplish all this ministry and life change in the last year. So thank you so much for that. Um, Secondly, when it comes to the ministry plan, what I want you to do is read this and then ask God how he wants you to participate in the mission and ministry of Crosspoint in the coming year. Okay, that's it. Uh, As you read this, you you look through the ministry objectives and the expected returns, what you're going to see is that there are some big dreams on the table for 2018. Uh, You're going to stop at certain points and you're going to go, wow, what, we're we're doing that? Which is awesome. I I hope that happens for you. And then you're also going to see that our operating budget, our ministry budget, is the largest it's ever been in our history, $2.3 million. But here's what I believe, truly believe this. I truly believe that with the help of God and by the grace of God, we can accomplish every single bit of what's included in this plan. But, but hear me, it's going to take everyone who calls Crosspoint their church participating in some way. Um, it's it's going to take all of us investing time, talent, and treasure into the mission and ministry of the church. And so uh, I just want to encourage us, let's not be those people this coming year who sit back and go, ah, other people will do it. 
Other people will give to that. No, let's be those people who, if this is our church, we take ownership and we go, no, 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 we're going to be a part of what God wants to do in the coming year. And so uh, let me just reiterate quickly, okay, annual report, you read it and you celebrate. Ministry plan, you, you read it and you ask God how he wants you to participate. And then finally, if you have any questions about anything in these documents, feel free to reach out to us. Um, any of our pastors would love to just talk with you and answer any questions you may have, okay? Awesome. Well, with that said, let's grab our Bibles if we have them, and let's go to two passages together. We're going to be in Mark chapter 14, and we're also going to be in Exodus chapter 12. Mark chapter 14 and Exodus chapter 12. You can mark your place in Exodus. We'll get there in just a little while. We'll start in Mark 14, but Mark 14, Exodus chapter 12. As you're finding your way to those passages, here's what I want you to do. I want you to think right now about a significant moment in your life. Maybe it's a birthday, it's a graduation, maybe it was a first date, your wedding day, some kind of game you attended. I don't know what it is for you, but I just want you to think of a significant moment. Do you have it? Got it locked in? All right, here's the next question. Was there food present in that moment? Uh, I, I know that's a weird question for some of us, but stick with me. I'm going somewhere with this, I promise, all right? How many of you, as you think about that moment, remember food being there? Okay, quite a few of us, and to those of you who just raised your hand, thank you. You just proved the point of today's message. And the point of today's message is this, that significant meals mark significant moments. Significant meals mark significant moments. I think you'll agree with this, but as people, it's almost instinctual for us to mark significant moments in our lives using food, isn't it? I mean, I think back to a couple significant moments for me, like when my daughters were born. I still remember for like a month afterwards, people just kept showing up to our house with food. And it was awesome. Didn't have to grocery shop or cook for like a month. Just ate what other people made us. It was fantastic. But still to this day, when I eat certain meals like baked ziti or chicken enchiladas, praise the Lord. Those are from heaven itself, I'm convinced. But, but I eat those things and I still think back to the births of my daughters. See, the point I'm making simple, food is powerful. So powerful that oftentimes we use it to mark significant events and occasions in our lives. And what we're going to see in our passage for today is that same truth being reflected. You see, Mark highlights for us two significant meals, the Passover and the Lord's Supper, both of which were instituted to mark significant moments for people belonging to God. And to make sense of that, we're just going to dive in and get to work, all right? So if your Bibles are open to Mark 14... We're going to pick up and start reading in verse 12. Here's what it says. And on the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, go into the city and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him and wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, the teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out, and they went to the city and found it, just as he had told them, and they prepared the Passover. And when it was evening, he came with the twelve. Now, if you're new or newer to Crosspoint, uh, as a church, we've been in a series on the book of Mark for about a year now. We're almost done, got a few weeks left. But this section of the book of Mark that we're in currently, it details the last week of Jesus' life here on the earth. The passage that we're reading from today happened on Thursday of that week. 
And Mark tells us that Thursday was also known as the first day of unleavened bread. Now, you need to know, unleavened bread, this was a feast that the Jewish people celebrated every year. It lasted eight days, and as part of the feast, this really important meal happened called the Passover. We'll talk about it in just a detail. But this was like the celebration of all celebrations for Jewish people. You know, it's like Christmas for us. And so what we see in the text is two of Jesus' disciples And we find out in the book of Luke that it's actually Peter and John that ask the question, hey, Jesus, where should we prepare for you to eat the Passover? This was an important question. It's believed that on this Thursday morning, Jesus and his disciples were in this little town outside the city of Jerusalem known as Bethany. The problem was they couldn't eat Passover in Bethany. There was a requirement that said, as a Jew, you had to travel into the city of Jerusalem and eat the Passover meal within the walls of that city. This is why families made the journey to Jerusalem every year for this feast. And so Jesus tells his guys, hey, go into the city, and I want you to look for a guy carrying a jar of water. Now, this was a very specific sign. Because in this day and in this culture, men usually didn't carry jars of water. This was something that women did. And so these guys knew. As soon as we see that guy, we're going to know it's him. And so um, look for a guy carrying a jar of water. And then I want you to follow him to whatever house he's going to. And when he gets there, go inside that house and, and say to the master of the house, the teacher has asked, Jesus has asked, where is our room? Where's the room that we can use for the Passover? And so it, it's believed that Jesus probably knew this person, whoever it was that owned the house Maybe he made prior arrangements for he and his disciples to share in this meal. Well, Peter and John, they do what Jesus says, find this guy, go to the house, and they start preparing the meal. Now, it's really important for you to understand that the Passover meal had to be prepared and consumed in a very, very specific manner. Because, don't miss it, because it was meant to mark a very significant moment in the history of Israel. And it's a significant moment that's recorded for us in the Old Testament in the book of Exodus. So if you've been saving your place there, just go ahead and flip there. Exodus chapter 12. Uh, We'll read from there in just a moment, but I'll give you some background. In the book of Exodus, we find the nation of Israel living in slavery in Egypt. They'd actually lived in slavery in Egypt for over 400 years until God finally heard their call for deliverance, raised up this deliverer named Moses, and he says to Moses, I want you to go to Pharaoh and demand that he let my people go. Well, after Moses argued with God just a little bit, some back and forth took place, he finally agreed, and he goes to Pharaoh, and he demands, hey, God wants you to let his people go. Well, the Pharaoh says, I'm not going to let the people go. And so God next decides to send some plagues, a series of plagues onto the land. And it was some really awful stuff, you know, like frogs and gnats and lice and uh, boils and killed all the livestock and turned the water to blood. It was just all this insane stuff. Well, after nine plagues, Pharaoh is still keeping the people of God in bondage. And so God decides to send a tenth plague. This was the worst plague, and it was the plague that would eventually lead to deliverance. It was the plague of the death of the firstborn son. God's plan was to sweep through the nation of Israel and to kill all the firstborn sons of the Egyptians, including the firstborn sons of their livestock. While, look, while in his grace, providing a way of escape for his people, the nation of Israel, through the shed blood of a perfect lamb. And this is where I want us to read the instructions, because God says, look, he says, look, on the night that I pass through, on the night of this plague, I want you as my people to have a meal. I want you to get together as households, and I want you to eat as a way of marking this significant moment. So let's look at the instructions. Exodus 12, 
But we'll pick it up in verse 3. Here's what God says through Moses to his people. He says, tell all the congregation of Israel that on the 10th day of this month, every man shall take a lamb according to their father's houses, a lamb for a household. And if the household is too small for a lamb, then he and his nearest neighbor shall take according to the number of persons. According to what each can, uh, according to what each can eat, you shall make your count for the lamb. Your lamb shall be without blemish and a, uh, a male a year old. You may take it from sheep or from the goats, and you shall keep it until the 14th day of this month when the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel shall kill their lambs at twilight. Then they shall take some of the blood and put it on the two doorposts and the lintel of the houses in which they eat it. They shall eat the flesh that night, roasted on the fire with unleavened bread and bitter herbs. They shall eat it. Do not eat any of it raw or boiled in water, but roast it, its head with its, with its legs and its inner parts. And you shall let none of it remain until the morning. Anything that remains until the morning, you shall burn. In this manner, you shall eat it with your belt fastened, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand. And you shall eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. And then here's the promise of the plague. He says, for I will pass through the land of Egypt that night. And I will strike all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, both man and beast. And on all the gods of Egypt, I will execute judgments. I am the Lord. The blood shall be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. And no plague will befall you to destroy you when I strike the land of Egypt. And then finally, God says, this day shall be a memorial day, and you shall keep it as a feast to the Lord throughout your generations, as a statute forever, you shall keep it as a feast. So let's talk about the instructions, all right? I'm going to do my best to make this really simple, because I know some of you are thinking right now, that doesn't sound simple at all, all right? So let me break it down. Um, God comes to his people through Moses, and he says, on the 10th day of this month, it was the month of Nisan. In the Hebrew, it was known as the month of Aviv, uh, the first month of the Jewish calendar year. So God says, on the 10th day of, of this month, every household needs to take a lamb. And then he makes a special provision. He says, if your family's too small to eat an entire lamb by yourselves, well, you can share a lamb with your neighbor. But when it all came down to it, every household needed a lamb. Well, God says, I want you to keep that lamb for four days. By the way, it needs to be male. Uh, It needs to be a year old, and it needs to be perfect. Can't have any defects, any spots, any blemishes. Keep it for four days, and on the 14th day of this month, the whole nation of Israel needs to kill their lambs at twilight, somewhere between about 3 and 5 p.m. Then God says, after killing those lambs, everybody needs to take blood and put it on the doorpost of their houses. And then they need to roast the lamb. Like, cook this thing over an open fire. You can't eat it raw. You can't boil it. You need to roast it over an open fire, the entire thing, its heads, its legs, all of its inner parts. And then you need to eat that roasted lamb that night with bitter herbs and unleavened bread. The bitter herbs, there's a lot of symbolism in this. The bitter herbs were meant to symbolize the sorrow and bitterness of slavery. The unleavened bread was meant to symbolize the nation of Israel leaving Egypt quickly in haste. You know, they didn't have time to cook bread with leaven in it. Uh, If you know anything about bread, you know bread that has leaven in it, you got to sit around and wait on that bread to rise. They needed to get out of there, so they needed to eat and leave. Uh, In fact, the entire meal was supposed to be eaten in haste. This is why God says, when you eat, you need to have your belt fastened, sandals on your feet, staff in your hand. 
This was God's way of saying, when you eat this meal, be dressed ready for travel. You know, this is like when you go to the airport and you're trying to scarf down some food before you get on your plane with your luggage in your hand. That's kind of the idea here. You need to be ready to leave. And then here's what God says. On the night you enjoy that meal, I'm going to sweep through the land. And every house that I see that has the blood of that perfect spotless lamb on its doorpost, I will pass over that house and I will spare your sons from death. And then God tells his people, every year as a nation, I want you to eat this meal and I want you to remember what I've done for you. Well, listen, in Mark 14, that's the meal Jesus is eating with his disciples. They've gathered in this upper room and they are eating to look back and remember God freeing their ancestors from over 400 years of slavery in Egypt. Now, as they're eating, Jesus does something really interesting. Here they are sharing in this celebratory dinner, and Jesus decides to interrupt dinner with some really bad news. Look back at the text with me, if you will. Mark 14, uh, we'll pick it back up in verse 17. Mark says, and as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who's eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, is it I? And then he said to them, it is one of the 12 who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the son of man goes as it's written of him. But woe to that man by whom the son of man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. So I want you to visualize this with me as best you can, okay? Here's Jesus and the disciples sitting in this upper room. They're eating this Passover meal together. They're laughing. They're celebrating, having a good time, you know, just food and drink flowing. And then Jesus speaks up and says, hey, uh, I need to tell you guys something, some bad news. One of you is going to betray me. I envision in that moment the life just being sucked out of the room. You know, it's like when that mom or dad decides to announce their divorce at their kid's birthday party. And everybody there is going, really? You had to pick now? Like, this, could, this is a party. Couldn't this have waited? Well, Jesus decides, yeah, I know we're here to celebrate freedom. This can't wait. You need to know one of you is going to betray me. And then his disciples naturally start asking the question. And, and when you study it in the Greek, it's really interesting. They ask the question negatively. Jesus, it, it isn't me, is it? I'm not the one who's going to betray you, am I? And I want to stop here for a moment if I can and just speak to us because I think this is a really important question that we still need to ask ourselves on a regular basis today. Would I, as a follower of Jesus, ever betray Jesus? Would I ever betray him in the face of persecution, in the face of hardship? Would I betray Jesus if it benefited me or was advantageous to me in some way? The reason I think you and I need to ask that question on a regular basis is really simple. Because every single one of us in this room today, including this guy on the platform, is fully capable of doing what Judas did. You get that, right? Like there's not a single person in this room that, that is exempt from the, the, the possibility and the potential of betraying Jesus Christ. Listen, I'm telling you, you can come to church all you want. You can run around in Christian circles all you want. You can listen to all the Christian teaching you want. You can have a front row seat to what God is doing in the lives of other people. But if you and I do not keep our hearts bowed to Jesus, we can easily betray Jesus. 
And this is why I want to say to you as your pastor, this is why we have to take our relationship with Jesus so seriously. It's why we can't let lesser things crowd him out from our lives. It's why you and I have to make it a point to to pray and to seek God and to be in his word and to come and experience worship together as a church family. Like we don't do any of those things because uh, it's just what we do. We don't go through the motions. It's not about ritual. It's about pressing into our relationship with Jesus so that we never get close to that line of betrayal. Jesus isn't me. Am I the one who's going to betray you? Well, Jesus, it's interesting. He decides not to answer their question directly, specifically. He doesn't name his betrayer. He says to his disciples, instead, it's, it's one of the 12, it's one of you guys who's dipping bread with me. And then he says something really interesting. He says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. Meaning, all that the Old Testament says about me, all that's written down there, it's about to go down in my life. Like he's speaking to passages like Psalm 22, Isaiah 53, that speak about the suffering and death of God's promised Savior. Jesus is just saying, everything written down in the Old Testament scriptures, I'm about to experience it. But then he says, woe to the man who betrays me and hands me over to that suffering. This is where it gets really practical for us. What Jesus is doing in our text is he is speaking in one moment both to the sovereignty of God and human responsibility. Just stay with me and I'll make sense of this, okay? Uh, Jesus is basically saying here, God has planned and he is in control of everything that's about to go down in my life. But at the same time, the guy who gives me over to all those things, he is fully responsible for his betrayal. Look, this is a great reminder for people like you and me today. That even though God is in control of all things at all times, you and I are still fully responsible for the decisions we make and the actions we take. Are you with me? Which means that we cannot be those people who blame God when life goes bad as a result of our bad choices. Listen, I've talked to these people a lot in in my time in ministry. I've had people come and say, James, I I need to meet with you. And they'll come in and sit down and they'll say, uh, or or they'll share a story about making a decision that blew up their marriage. They'll talk about a decision they made to end a career, a decision they made to blow up a friendship, uh, decisions that they're making on an ongoing basis to stay trapped in addiction or, or spiritual bondage. And then they'll say something like this, well, I guess God's just got a purpose for it all. I mean, God, God, God just let this happen. I mean, I guess there's some reason for it. And I sit there and think, nope, God had nothing to do with that. Is God in control? Absolutely. Does everything have to pass through the hands of God uh, before it ever happens? Absolutely. But are you responsible for what you just did? Absolutely. And what you need to do is stop blaming God for your bad decision and take responsibility for it. Listen, here's what I cannot promise you, okay? I cannot promise you if there's some kind of sin in your life. Uh, if you've made a really bad decision that has landed you in a really bad place and you decide, okay, today's the day, I'm going to repent of that, I'm taking responsibility, I can't promise you that the consequences of that decision will be lessened. Like sometimes we're just stuck with the consequences of whatever we did. And it is what it is. We just have to deal with it. What I can promise you is this, and this is the beautiful, beautiful news. You take responsibility for that decision, that action, 
and you repent of that thing and you ask Jesus for grace and help to climb out of that hole you've dug for yourself, out of his great love for you, Jesus will meet you where you are every single time with the grace and help you need. And look at me in our text. This is what ultimately the second meal reminds us of. It reminds us of the rescue and the grace of Jesus Christ. And so let's read the rest of the passage together. Here's what Mark goes on to say. Uh, Mark 14, verse 22. And as they were eating, Jesus took bread. And after blessing it, he broke it and he gave it to them. And he said, take, this is my body. And he took a cup and, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them and they drank all of it. And he said to them, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. So in these verses, Jesus institutes, this is the first time we see it, institutes what is known as the Lord's Supper or communion or as some denominations and traditions call it Eucharist, which simply means to give thanks. What I love about what we just read is that Jesus institutes the Lord's Supper using elements from the first meal, the Passover meal. You see, when Jewish families ate the Passover meal together, the one presiding over that meal, which was typically the father, he would stand at various points throughout the meal and he would explain the significance of the elements. And so there'd come a time where he'd raise the roasted lamb and he'd raise the unleavened bread and raise up the bitter herbs. And he would go on to explain how each of these elements symbolized in certain ways Israel's slavery and deliverance from Egypt. There were also four cups of wine that Jewish families drank together as part of this meal. And those four cups represented four specific promises from God to his people found in Exodus 6. God promised, I'm going to rescue you from Egypt. I'm going to free you from slavery. I'm going to redeem you by my great power, and I'm going to restore you into a right relationship with me. And so at various points, the father would stand, and he'd raise the glass, and he'd remember the promise, and they would all drink. And so, again, picture this with me. Here's Jesus with his disciples. He's presiding over the meal, yet Jesus decides to go off script. Instead of raising the bread and raising the cup and and, and sticking to what the disciples knew and expected to hear, Jesus completely says something that may have shocked them that, that was really unfamiliar. He raises the unleavened bread, he breaks it, he blesses it, and he says, this is my body. And then he raises one of the cups, and he says, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. So what is Jesus doing here? Like, why would he flip the script like this? Why would he add significance to these elements that they had never known before? Well, I love how Pastor Tim Keller answers this question in his book, Jesus the King. Here's what he says. He says, with these simple gestures of holding up the bread and the wine, with the simple words, this is my body, this is my blood, Jesus is saying that all the earlier deliverances, the earlier sacrifices, the lambs at Passover were pointing to himself. Just as the first Passover was observed the night before God redeemed the Israelites from slavery through the blood of the lambs, this Passover meal was eaten the night before God redeemed the world from sin and death through the blood of Jesus. Amen? It's just beautiful. Look, this is what makes the Lord's Supper so significant. It's this simple meal. We come to the table and we take a piece of bread and we dip it in juice we use juice here at Crosspoint, not wine, because I'm just not willing to fight that battle. But 
we, we take bread and we dip it in juice. And this very simple meal marks that significant moment when the body of Jesus Christ was broken for our sin. When he was beaten, when he was wounded, when he was punched in the face, spat upon, beard ripped out, crown of thorns driven down onto his head, nailed to a cross for you and me. And the juice represents the blood of Jesus Christ that was shed and poured out to atone for or to pay for our sins. You see, when we partake of this simple meal, we're simply eating to look back in remembrance of the sacrificial death of Jesus Christ in our place for our sins. And as we look back and remember, we remember three distinct things. And with this, we'll be done. Number one, we remember our freedom. We remember our freedom, just as the Jewish people ate Passover to remember God freeing them from slavery in Egypt, physical slavery. We eat to remember Jesus Christ freeing us from ultimate slavery, spiritual slavery. We remember that because of our faith in Jesus Christ, his blood now covers us. And as a result, death passes over us. And we have been set free by the Savior of the world from sin, death, and hell forever. We remember our freedom. And then secondly, we remember our family. I don't know that we talk as much about this or maybe as much as we should when we talk about communion. Um, but just as the Passover was a family meal for the Jewish people, the Lord's Supper is a family meal for Christians today. Uh, this is a meal we take together. We don't do it in isolation. We don't eat it alone. Uh, we take it together in moments like this. And the reason that we take this meal together is so that we can be reminded that in Jesus Christ, walls have been torn down. Walls of race, uh, walls of, of gender, male. there's no male or female, there's no slave or free, uh, th there's, no, there's no Jew or Gentile, like anything that could divide us as people has been removed in Jesus Christ, and because of him, we are now united as family, brothers and sisters in the same family, the family of God, and so we come to the table, and we eat, and remember, oh yeah, I'm a part of something bigger than just me, and that's all because of Jesus. And then finally, we remember our future. And Jesus in our text points us to our future. I love this. He raises the cup and they all drink. And, and he says to his disciples, I, I'm not going to drink this again until I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Jesus is reminding us, look, that there's coming a day for us as followers of Jesus when we're going to be with him in his eternal kingdom. And on that day, here's what's amazing to me. The Bible teaches, and you can find this in Revelation 19, the great marriage supper of the Lamb, that one of the first things we're going to do with Jesus as his people is sit down and feast. We're going to sit down at the table with the resurrected Jesus, and we're going to eat, and we're going to remember what he's done to get us to that table. And on that day, pain and suffering will be no more. Tears will be wiped away. God will be with us as our God. We will be with him as his people. Pain and suffering over once and for all. That's coming for us. And so when we come to the table, we remember our future. And so with all this explained and said, I, I just thought it'd be fitting today, even necessary for us to come and to partake of the Lord's Supper. And so in the front and back of this room, we've got several tables set up. Two in the front, two in the back, one on the side for all you folks sitting there. And in a few moments, what we want to invite you to do is just to come and, and to take bread and to dip it in the juice 
and to eat and to remember. Now, before we do that, I just want to say a couple things, and then we're going to pray, okay? Uh, number one, number one, we need to make sure that we do this in a worthy manner. This is what Paul teaches in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Uh, taking communion or the Lord's Supper in a worthy manner means that before we come to the table, we just examine ourselves. Uh, we, we seek out any unconfessed or unrepentant sin that might still be within us, and we clear the air between us and God. And, and I love God's promise in 1 John 1, 9, man, if you come and you confess your sins, I'm faithful and just, and I'll forgive you of all unrighteousness. And so we do that before we come. But I would also say you should examine your relationships with other people in your life, your brothers and sisters in Christ. One of the reasons the Corinthian church got sick and died while they took communion is because they took it in a divided manner, selfishly. They squeezed their brothers and sisters out from the table. There was discord and disunity. And so I I would just invite you to do this. As you examine yourself, if you remember, oh, yeah, that relationship. Oh, yeah, that person. Maybe you just need to look over to somebody in the room and go, hey, will you forgive me? I was an idiot this morning. I'm so sorry. Maybe you need to send a quick text before you come to the table. Um, I, I really need you to forgive me for what I said. Maybe you need to step outside and make a phone call. Maybe you don't need to come to the table at all until you get that relationship fixed. This is a, a serious, serious thing. And so that's first. You need to examine yourself. The second thing I want to say is this. Uh, the Lord's Supper is a meal reserved only for Christians. And so if you're a non-Christian in the room, I, I would say to you, man, we're honored that you're here. Love that you're in the room today. And I pray that Crosspoint is always a safe place for you to come and to bring your doubts and, and your questions. I pray you always leave feeling welcomed and loved when you're with us. And we don't ever want to leave you out of anything we do, but this is something we have to leave you out of. Because, look, because this meal holds no significance for you. I mean, think about it. You can't remember someone you've never met, right? And so if you're a non-Christian in the room, I, I would say a couple of things. One, um, you can just hang out in your seat. Nobody's going to judge you or think less of you and just hang out in your seat while the rest of us come and take this. Or the other option is, well, you can become a Christian today. You can put your faith in the broken body and the shed blood and the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then come to the table with your new brothers and sisters in Christ and eat and remember what Jesus Christ has done for you today. And so if you need to put your faith in him as Savior and Lord, uh, I want to help you do that right now. So just all around the room, can we bow our heads? And close our eyes. I'm going to invite our prayer team to come and to get in their places as well. Christians in the room, I would just encourage you right now, go ahead and start examining your life. Pray for yourself. Confess sin. Ask for forgiveness. Whatever you need to do, just start to do that now. But for those of you in the room who walked in without a relationship with Jesus, uh, you're not a Christian, but God has made it clear to you today, you need a relationship with him. If you know you need Jesus, I would just say right now, where you're sitting, why don't you just say something like this in faith to him? Just say, Jesus, I believe you're God. I believe you're Savior. And I believe you poured out your blood for me. I put my faith in in your broken body, in your shed blood, in your death. Jesus, I believe that you did all that to pay for my sins so that I could be loved and accepted by God. But Jesus, I also believe that you rose from the dead to conquer sin, death, and hell for me forever. And so Jesus, right now in this moment, would you forgive me of all my sins? Take hold of my life. Jesus, give me new and eternal life today. 
I say yes to a relationship with you. Listen, with heads still bowed and eyes still closed, if you just prayed that with me, I want to ask you to do me a simple favor, if you would. Uh, Would you be willing right now, and this will take just a little courage on your part, not a whole lot, but would you be willing right now in this moment just to acknowledge that you made that decision by lifting a hand, wherever you are. James, that's me putting my faith in Jesus today, trusted in what he's done. Um, Just throw your hand up high where we can see it. Our prayer team is going to come and put a resource in your hand, and as soon as you receive it, you can put your hand back down. James, it's me putting my faith in Christ today. Awesome. Well, let me pray for the rest of us, and then we're going to come to the table. Father, as we eat and remember Jesus, my prayer is that your presence would just flood this place. God, as we partake today, don't let us go through the motions. Don't let this be ritual. God, overwhelm us with the depths of your grace and love for us as you've put it on display in your son, Jesus Christ. God, we pray all this in his name and and for the glory and honor of his name.